that last week was a hit and that uh, Lisa kept you guys giggling through the whole thing, right? <laughs> um, I'm thinking that um, part of our review this morning needs to be that we, because we've been in this for quite a while now, we're at, we're into week three uh, of a, the last seven week course. So we've really only got four weeks left, right? So we're now at a point where we have spent enough time really um, taking apart, breaking it down and, ta and taking it apart, looking at each of the pieces. We need to start now um, really beginning to see what the impact is of what has been written here. If you go back to the beginning of this, the author's purpose for writing was what? Why did he write this account? Right, the exact truth about... Okay, the things that you have heard. And also about the things that have uh, occurred among you, those things which that you have been witnesses to, right? The things that Jesus had done among them, right? Now, when you contemplate the purpose, that particular purpose being that you know the exact truth, ha has he been successful in that? Ha what is it that he most uh, importantly wants to declare to us in this record? What seems to be his primary focus? The son of man. And being the son of man, what does that entail? How would you break that? If somebody were to come to you and say, what does that mean, son of man? Okay, that is God come in flesh. Why did God have to come in flesh? What is that all about? If I'm a person that you're speaking to on the street, and I'm clueless, right? Not brilliant like all of you. <laughs> Right, but but I'm clueless. If I'm clueless about who Son of God is a funny phrase, right? Or Son of Man is a strange sounding phrase. How would you explain that to someone? He had to overcome death, disease, sin of the world, and a man had to do that. Okay, okay, and tell me why those things have to be overcome. Where did those things come from? If God is God. Did he not create this world perfect? And was he not capable of making it perfect? Was he not capable of maintaining its perfection? What do you, how do you answer that? So why did God give man free will choice if man is going to mess it all up? Couldn't God have foreseen that? Okay, and? So what is the value of having free will? You can make a choice. Okay. Children that love him their own will. Okay, very good. Okay, we're, get, we're getting a little deeper now. So we, it's the fact that he gave you free will is an indication that he gave it to you because free will and the exercise of it will indicate something about your own personal decisions, right? So the writing of this information was that you may know the exact truth, the exact truth about the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to overcome death, disease, um, 
sin, all these things. Now, sin is an interesting topic then that will come up in this kind of a conversation. How do you explain that to a person who's, I, I, believe it or not, I've had conversations with people who really don't think people are sinners. They, they really see them as basically good people. They see there are some people who sin, but they're, those are kind of isolated accounts. But then on the whole, uh, people are not sinners. I, I remember having a conversation with a woman about her young daughter, and she said, no, no, she's not a sinner. I said, really? Has she ever disobeyed you? Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Has she ever thrown a temper tantrum and said no or mine? Right? Where does that come from? Correct? So, again, you're back to that free will that God created us um, to have free will to make a choice to, a free will choice to either obey or not obey. Right? Okay. So, now we have a record that's been written by this author in hopes that there would be a clarity about the work of then the Son of Man, right? Would you say, in all that we have seen so far, that the Son of Man message that's been given to us through this author has been productive and clear and concise? How? What are some examples to you in starting from chapter 1 all the way now up to 20, what are some things that you have seen that demonstrate to you that Jesus is the Son of Man? He raised the dead and we'll, we'll see he will raise himself. Okay, that he, in fact, was capable of raising the dead. Now, the fact that he could raise the dead, what does that tell us about him? That he's a man? Pardon? Pat, well, there you go. So that kind of starts weaving into where we're going with our message today, right? About authority and upon what authority, do, you know, where do you get this authority that you exercise is, was the question that the Pharisees and, and the scribes were asking him. It was a challenge, by the way. It was more than just um, a question. They weren't just being inquisitive. They were being aggressive. There was an aggressiveness to this challenge. Okay, so on in in one point he came that he and and the works that he were was doing one of which was raising people from the dead right and therefore we see that he is rectifying the one issue about death. What does death have to do with sin? How do those two relate? There you go. Why? Why did death come as a result of sin? Okay. I know these are kind of weird questions, but these are questions that get thrown out at you when you're in conversations. That people who don't have biblical knowledge have not, you would not believe how much knowledge you guys have in your heads. And it's a given assumption that everybody else knows it too, right? Have you ever sat under a school teacher as a child who had taught math for so many years or English for so many years that they were really ineffective at, at, the, at the 
front of the classroom because they assume you understand what a dangling participle was, right? You're going, oh, what? And it's dangling? You know, <laughs> you don't get it. You don't understand. And, and if they don't back up and slow it down so that they can really parse it out with you and help you to understand, okay, there's sin and there's death. How do those two relate? Where was that law instituted? There you go. In the Garden of Eden. Now, Okay, so what you really almost have to do is if you're going to take them into Luke and show them how the Son of Man came to um, accomplish these things that the Son of Man was prophesied he would come to do, you also still also have to back up and say, what was the fundamental problem to begin with? Where did the problem start? Disobedience to what? There you go. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. He created man. He placed them in the garden. He gave them a few simple guidelines or rules, right? And that would, would be constitute the law of God. Now, that wasn't the written law of God as they had in the, in the days of Moses, but it was a law nonetheless, right? And the simplicity of what's recorded for us is that there was one tree. God said, don't eat of that. In the day that you do, what? You shall surely die. And so when man ate of it, what happened? Well, I see Adam and Eve living on. How did they die? There you go. They died. It was a spiritual death first, but what eventually did happen? The physical death came later. So all these kinds of things, I think, as we're looking at Luke, you kind of have to um, go back and kind of evaluate where is this author headed? What do you think the author's intention is for this record? What does he want the record for? Yes, that you may know the exact truth, but what else? <laughs> no, it's too hard for me to repeat what I say. I always say things off the cuff and I can't remember. <laughs> Okay, if the, re if the record was written that you may know the exact truth, but what else is his purpose? What do you think his intention is for us us today? Not, ne not necessarily just Theophilus, who it was written for, right? But what does he want you and I to use this record for? Okay. All right, for the, for the purpose of being convinced and coming to believing. And in that process of coming into believing, as Sarah said, then to repent. Repent of those sins that we just talked about, right? Um, are there any other points that, yes, Kathy? Right. Okay, so how do you take a record written about ancient days, a man named Jesus, and bring it forward then into present life. What are the applications of what Jesus is showing us here? How do we apply what you've learned? Are there truths that you've looked at yet this far that you feel really apply in your life? And I know those personal applications are a little, they require you stop after you're dead tired from doing all the homework. But I don't know about you, have you found that 
um, after you've done homework and you kind of cheat on it, it's later all of a sudden you have epiphanies. Oh, that's just like this, right? The whole time I was on vacation I, with these ladies, I kept going, oh, that's just like in Luke when blah, 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 right? And that's just like in Luke when this happened. Um, because those things, by the Spirit of God, who is our teacher, as um, Heinz and I were talking about earlier when he came in, he says, he said, Katie is my my second favorite teacher. And everybody looked at him, well, who's your first? And he said, Jesus. And I went, amen. <laughs> he thought I didn't know that answer. I actually did. <laughs> so when this author wrote this, his purpose was that we come to understand salvation through the Son. And we have to, therefore, really fully understand who the Son is. One of the subjects that have, has come up is this thing called the kingdom that we're going to enter into. What have you learned about the kingdom so far? Okay. All right. Wow, that's quite a nice little list. Woohoo! Star for the day, girl. High five. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so she's been thinking this through a little bit, huh? Oh, good. There you go. <laughs> good. Okay. So the kingdom of God is something that has to do with then that spiritual life, right? Are there any other qualities to it besides the spiritual reality of it? What did Jesus say about the kingdom of God? Okay, it's hard for the wealthy to enter into it. And so it sounds to me like if the wealthy are going to enter into it, he's speaking about people who are alive, right, and still living. So they're able to, if they are able to get to the place of repentance, humility, uh, putting aside the wealth for the greater riches of heaven. If they're able to do that, they actually get to enter into that kingdom, right? So is there a quality about the kingdom that's for the here and now as well? Okay, there's the eternal reward of the eternal kingdom, but what about the present kingdom now? Is there a present kingdom now, did Jesus not say the kingdom of God has come among you? Right. So we have to kind of, I think, be careful that when we go through scripture that we make sure we kind of split the hairs on what the intention of the statement is about the kingdom of God. Sometimes the kingdom of God in the word of God is speaking about us in our sanctification life of being believers and now being sanctified as his children living as kingdom children but living in this life yet but then there's the promise of yet a kingdom to come correct that is the eternal kingdom that is the ultimate so in a way it's kind of like the parable it, there's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning right? So there's the earthly kingdom, but then there's also the heavenly kingdom that's yet to come. So kind of keep that in mind when you're thinking about the kingdom of God and make sure that when you're going through scripture that you kind of split the hairs on that. It's an awful lot like that word salvation that has three verb tenses, right? You, It's the justification, sanctification, and glorification. 
the justification, it's a work that's completed and finished. It's all by grace. God did it. You believed him, and it's a done deal. But then there's the sanctification of salvation where you're walking it out, you're living it, and you're growing through it. God, progressively, you cooperate with him. You grow in your faith. So sometimes it'll say, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And some people look at that and go, oh, you have to work for your salvation? Do you? No, because what is the verb tense of that word salvation? Sanctification. It's the part that takes place after you have been justified by grace. So if you don't know about those three verb tenses, as you're going through scripture, you can come across that word salvation or saved, and you can get confused. And it can look like it's meaning something it isn't. The same thing is true about the word kingdom. The word kingdom has two qualities to it. That is the earthly kingdom that you are dwelling in as a child of God because you've been, you have entered in by faith and been justified. Now you're walking it out in that sanctification. But you know what's coming later? The glorification and the, and the reality of the true kingdom, which is eternal, that we enter, will enter into. So this author actually addresses both sides of it, does he not? And so as you're going through and you're reading, you kind of have to make sure that you split the hairs on it. Um, and that's a skill that you just learn as an inductive student little by little where you, when you see certain words, you go, you have to ask the questions. Now, which kingdom is he speaking of? Is it this one on the earth or is he speaking about a kingdom to come? Okay. All right. So this author has said, um, inasmuch as uh, many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So that, so verse 4 gives you the why, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So we are looking um, at the Son of Man. We did go back uh, several times and look at this, the root of the Son of Man. That takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that first sin where Eve is promised that she will be given a seed who will crush the head of Satan, who was the tempter in that garden experience. That's where it all began. That seed that she is promised is that Son of Man. And so there, it's like um, uh, two words. They, it's the same person, but it's just a different title, right? And then when you move forward to Genesis 15, where Abram is promised also a seed, and he says, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, why was it credited to him as righteousness, that he believed that God was going to give him a son? Because he wasn't speaking of his literal son. He was speaking of a seed to come that was promised in the Garden of Eden. It's that same seed who is the son of man, who then, according to Galatians chapter 3, it, that seed is Christ, Galatians 3.16. So that's the thread that kind of you can kind of pull on, and it goes through the whole uh, text of Scripture. It helps you to identify who is the son of man. The son of man is the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve. He was the same seed promised to Abraham. It's the same seed then that came that was Christ son of David. So now we're going to look at kind of a, a the next part of this today um, in Luke 20. 
But in order to go into Luke 20, we have to back up to 19. So let's go back to 19. And you all did this with Lisa. And when I came home, that was my first bit of homework was to get through 19 again. But really, we had already done most of it um, the week before. We had done 18 and most of 19. And I actually covered pretty much the whole thing. I'm so sorry. I hope I didn't mess you up on what you had to do together in class. But I know the homework was excellent. Tell me what you see in Luke 19. What was your title for that chapter? Very good. Excellent title. Okay. Okay, so we we definitely see that the point here is really his first coming was to seek and to save the lost, right? We see him with Zac, uh, Zacchaeus in ch verses 1 to 10 where Zacchaeus, uh, re uh, he is repentant um, and therefore salvation is bestowed to him. Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Well, I think our introduction helped you greatly. What do you think that means, the son of Abraham? In verse 9, 19.9. Okay. Remember when it said, and Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness? So what makes us a son of Abraham? What makes you and I a son of Abraham? We have the same kind of faith. Isn't that neat? We all enter into the same family. And so here he says to Zacchaeus, he says, you too are a son of Abraham. So if you didn't catch that little tiny thing, this is the, the kind of the subtleties in, in this particular book that are really not supposed to be subtle, but we kind of look past them, I think, because we don't fully put together all the pieces. You have to go back to Genesis 1 and then go into Genesis 15. Uh, 12 and 15 to tie in an understanding of who is the son of Abraham why did he just become a son of Abraham was he not a son of Abraham already was he not a Jew the answer is yes he was so why is he now a son of Abraham but he wasn't before did you ask that question and if not that would have been a good question to ponder on but now we have hopefully got that uh, definitely ironed down okay all right now um the next part of this is 11 to 27. What was your conclusion about what was going on? It really, I saw it as a contrast, and I'm not sure how um, how you all came through it, but what did you see in 11 to 27? Did you notice the kingdom of God is a key word in this section? Back to the kingdom of God again. Interesting how it keeps coming up. He said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom. Now, obviously, this is a parable. It's, it's, it's not a true story, but it is an earthly story with that heavenly meaning. Um, so they talk about this kingdom. And what, is, what do they say concerning it? If, since it has an actual reality application, what can you therefore say about what's being discussed here is that that kingdom he's speaking of is a reality kingdom that is going to come for us. So what do we see? What did we learn about that kingdom here in 11 to 27? 
Okay. So a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and uh, then he and when wait a second, and then returned. So what? Because we have hindsight twenty twenty, right? What what can you apply here? What is going on? Uh, there you go. They're speaking about a first coming and a second coming. And so when Jesus is telling these things, do you think that he's hoping that they get it? That they that they come to go ding, 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 ding? That there's a first coming and a second coming? What's very interesting to me when you go into 20 is how often he, he goes back to the Old Testament and quotes things to him that make it obvious that there was a first coming and a second coming, right? And that and that in the case of what we're going to look at, that he was to be rejected was even prophesied. So these are things that were not hidden from them. It's not like it was a mystery and like they should have been scratching their head. But these things were given to them by the prophets through the holy writings. These were the things that were talked about. At it. Every time they went to synagogue and sat and discussed, right, they would talk about these kinds of passages. How do you think they explained these passages? Well, Jesus is now taking those remembrances, kind of grabbing those remembrances of passages that they should be familiar with, and he's making and he's coming up with parables for them. So this is one of them. Okay. So what what's the contrast here that about this parable? When the when the nobleman returns for the second time, what's he going to do? There you go. He's going to judge and and reward. There's going to be reward for some. There's going to be judgment for others. To me, that's a significant point to make sure that you put in place on your on your uh, titling somehow, because it really does reveal the the truth reality. If the author's purpose in writing is that you know the exact truth, and that Jesus is that Son of Man who's come, who is the seed that was promised to fulfill those things and to undo the mess that we created in the Garden of Eden. Now he's talking about the kingdom that's going to come, and he's saying this first coming he came to, as we said in the first paragraph, to seek and to save the lost, and now when he comes a second time, he's going to come to judge. And the judgment is going to be to judge those who are opposed to him and his message and to reward those who are faithful. Okay, now we're at the, uh, did I get all the way through that? Nope, uh, 28 to 40. The reason I'm taking us through this is because 20 links back to 19, and so we kind of need to do this just to get our minds back in gear. Um, we see 28 to 40 then, what does Jesus do? What is your title there? What occurred there? He's That's right. So he enters into Jerusalem. He's called the king. And what's very interesting, again, voila, another scripture, another known scripture, another familiar scripture. So Jesus is not laying heavy stuff on them that they are not familiar with. He is reminding them about things they already know. And for whatever reason, they have either 
you know, buried it deeply or they've just overlooked it or whatever, but he's now bringing them up. Why do you think he brings this verse up here? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Yes, that's right. Okay, well, true. But but I'm just saying he records this in there. Why do you think he does this? Yes, and and there you go. Fulfilling the prophecy that was made and there was the prophecy if you if you systemically bring it back goes back to where? There you go. Goes all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden when Eve was promised what? Uh, that seed. Do you see how this all links together? So so now he's entered into Jerusalem. Now they're making this proclamation. Uh, the king is coming. And then uh, Jesus in 45 to 46 does what? This is kind of the crux that, that gets us set up to go into the next uh, chapter 20. Yes, he does. Another cleansing. Now, we've had a previous cleansing earlier in his ministry. Now, this is the second one, just in case you didn't know that. <coughs> the first one is not recorded in Luke. It's recorded in one of the other Gospels. Um, but Jesus does again. In this case, it is Jesus speaking. What does he say? It is written. I don't know if you guys have been marking that in any way, but I have been actually marking in a distinctive way. And Jesus said to them, I've been kind of doing just a little squiggly line in red underneath that, or it is written. And I've been doing that little squiggly line because these are statements where Jesus is bringing to their attention a point that they need to understand. And if if the author's purpose is that you see him as the son of man, these things that he's uh, bringing up, these things that he that he is recording, and remember, he's only recording snippets. I mean, there's so much more to Jesus's life and ministry that, and this author did not record them all. So what you, I think is significant, it's a lot like many of the, the well, I would say all of the Bible. There is precision and meticulous purpose in what's chosen to be recorded. And those things which are not recorded do not attain to the author's purpose. So if he has a purpose, the purpose is that we understand that Jesus is the Son of Man, the promised one. Then when he says in, um, after he's driven out the money changers, right, what does he say to them? What's the quote? And my house, go ahead, read it, say it. Okay, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. So when he says that, he's quoting again, right? What does that do concerning our understanding? If he's trying to convince us that Jesus is that son of God, what was said about the Son of God when he, oh, the Christ, the Messiah, when he would come? That he would have that kind of zeal for my house. That he, and that he would literally do what he, what is said right here, that he would cast them out, right? So he does that. He drives them out. Now, what's the response? They did not 
appreciate it one little bit. Now, he's had a lot of trouble with them for quite some time. Remember, all the way back with the wineskins, I think was the first time that I noticed it being really intense. There were some more subtleties before that, but about the time of the wineskins, they started getting their backs all in a ruffle, right? And so what we see them, it says they that they were, they weren't just upset about his teaching. They weren't just annoyed what was really going on there? What was going on? I know you guys must have talked with Lisa about this. Thank you, Lisa. You are awesome. I appreciate you so much. Yeah, bump, bump. <laughs> what What was the purpose of him driving out the money chain, changers at that point? And why would they be so upset about that? Yeah. So this was affecting their pocketbooks, wasn't it? So what does this show us a little bit about who, what was motivating these men? Why were they being? The love of money, exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, yes, and, and that's where we get into in chapter 20 where he ex expounds on that a little bit and really we can actually go all the way back to um, Luke 11 I think where it's really expanded remember all the woes woe to you Pharisees woe to you Pharisees woe to you Pharisees and then the, the scribes say hey you're insulting us too yes by the way woe to you scribes <laughs> right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No. Well, if not, if 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 anything, it was righteous anger. But there was a righteous zeal. I, I like the way Susan put it that he will have a zeal for my house, and that zeal does cause. You know, emotions in and of themselves are not evil. Even anger in itself is not an evil thing. It's how you go about exercising that anger. And if your anger is like Jesus displays it here, is a righteous anger for the sake of protecting God. You know, I can, t how many of you guys have had this happen? You hear a report on the news about some supposed Christian who did some horrifically horrible thing. And now the whole world is doing what? Yeah, judging all Christians. Oh, that's how those Christians are, right? And how often do the unbelieving world say, well, you're not really a Christian because you don't act this way or that way. Or They're constantly judging, right? So here we have a, a situation where uh, Jesus has a zeal for, his, for God's house, for his house, right? And he wants the purity of what was to be going on in that, in that place, although it was far from it. Even removing the money changers, it was still far from it. However, he was making a point, and he, and in doing what he did, he also fulfilled scripture, which is why it's brought up, which validates what? Who he actually is. It validates that just as scripture said, this is what the Son of Man, this is what the Christ shall do when he comes, he will have zeal for my house. And sure enough, here we see him having zeal. And in that zeal, you know, in a way, Lisa, uh, the anger is probably not really off 
exactly, but it's a righteous anger. And I think there's a distinction. I do think, I do think it's really important for all Christians to understand it's not bad to ever have anger. It's what kind of anger are you having and why are you having it? If it's a righteousness behind it that wants to protect what's good and fight against what's evil, that kind of anger is pleasing to the Lord. Jesus did it. All right. Okay. Now, let's go on to, from there. So what we see then at that point in verse 47, what are they now trying to do? To destroy him. We're not talking, they're not just ticked off at him. They're not just being possessive about their money. They're not just upset about their power. But they are, they have moved to a place of rage where they are literally wanting to destroy him. Now, I can say that this is, this kind of venomous hatred goes so much deeper than the superficialness of the one event. This is a deep-seated aggression against really anything that's righteous or holy. And because of their, um, ha have you ever entered into a room where just your presence annoys the unrighteous? And there's a, yeah, I, a lot of you are shaking your head. I mean, I, I can tell you that, go ahead. Yes. There you go. I like that. I got I got to remember that one. Wonder where the, later. Chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians. See, we got to do 2 Corinthians. We only did first. We got to do second next. Okay. Very nice. Thank you for that. Okay. So now we're ready to move into 20. So now that you're set up, we've done all this background on author's purpose, what you know, the design focus on this being the son of God. How has he been proving that? Now we've got that all kind of rotating in our head. We now see the enemy are these people who are venomous against him and they really, they just want to destroy him. Period. They are, they are at this blind madness almost. Uh, it's, it's beyond reason because they can't see reason. They can't even see truth and reality. And even when they do see truth and reality, they shove it down. They push it down deeply and they continue on their, their rampage basically to kill him, which, which to me is very interesting because we're going to see that particularly once we look at this next parable in here. So let's start with Luke 20 and let's, um, try to get us a nice little outline on this. We're going to do verses 1 to 8 first. Um, what is your subject matter in 1 through 8? What's going on here? Yes, so it's a, it's a question about his authority. So Jesus... is questioned about his authority, which is such a joke. <laughs> right. Right. And so if you want to, if you want, add that in. <laughs> and that's exactly right. There really was a contrast going on in this whole chapter between how the people were viewing him and what the, the chief priests and the scribes were, were seeing in Jesus and how they were responding. And 
the interesting thing is, again, we're back to, well, what was the motive and the problem? Why were these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and rulers so um, challenged or irritated by Jesus and the message that he brought? What, what do you think was the real issue? Yeah. Actually, you know, it's, it, although it's not the subject in Luke, one of the other things that had to be going on in their mind, too, was if Jesus comes to be that ultimate lamb of God, what's no longer going to be needed? The temple and the priesthood. They're going to be unemployed, right? And they are not happy about this at all. So, you know, you can kind of play around with that little thought as well, although it's not really addressed in this particular uh, book. Okay, so now he is he's confronted. Tell me what you learned about the word authority. Let's do authority right here. Um, did anybody do a word study on authority? All right, good girl. 1849, E-X-O-U-S-I-A. And what did... It, what does it mean? This one was hard, wasn't it? Did anybody have trouble? I looked this up and I had I had some trouble figuring out, you know, exactly which one of those actually applied. And I think it probably depends upon in which scenario you're looking at the challenge to his authority, right? So what did you, just give me the definitions that you found. Okay, I like that. Tell me what you said again, Jan. Uh, power to do something. Okay, power to do something. Now, that would apply when? Okay. All right. Okay, a, a right. A legal right. And then I, there was another one about delegated authority. Oh, there you go. Delegated. Okay, power of influence. Okay, power in. Okay, anyone have any insights that they learned when they looked at the both the word study and some of the other things? We went in and did a list through cross references, right? Let's look at those cross references first before we come to a total. On page thirty-four in your homework. Let's see if I can find mine. One, two, three. Because I have them printed out somewhere. Here we go. Okay, Luke 4, Luke 5, Luke 7, Luke 9, Luke 10, Luke 12, right? And then back, and then he took us into 28, Matthew 28. Okay, so tell me what you found in these passages in Luke. What were your insights about authority when you looked at it? 
he had power to drive out. Okay. Uh huh. All righty. And so that was in four uh, thirty-two. Okay. Okay. I loved that one. Jesus says, uh, Jesus taught with authority and amazed the people. So he exercised authority, right? That's in 32, correct? 432? Is that right? Okay. I like that one. Okay, so let, Jesus gave authority. I put on, I kind of glumped it together, the 12 and the 70. I just kind of put it together, right? Um, and sent them out. And when he gave them that authority, what happened? Yeah. They had power, they had power to perform and teach. Okay, so those were in Luke 9.1 and also in 10.19. Okay, so very interesting in that particular one is that when Jesus gave his authority it, and then it was put into practice or was exercised, it was a valid, having given it, it was a valid giving, right? Um, what, what do you see in that for yourself then? When you think about the Matthew 28 passage, what, what's Matthew 28? We probably all know that one, right? Yes, go ye therefore, right? And do what? And make disciples, right? So if if he has given that, now who did he give that authority to? Who is to go ye there for? Right. He spoke it to his immediate disciples, but what is the very nature of a disciple? What is a disciple to do? To follow Jesus, absolutely, Michelle. Okay, you went to the too, too fundamental. <laughs> yeah, okay, so they are to follow Jesus, and then their, their work is to do what? To multiply themselves, right? To make more disciples. So consequently, as Kathleen said, although initially the command is given to his first disciples, by very nature of a disciple, and that he gave that power and authority to them and commanded them to go forth. Therefore, what is the result? It's every disciple that follows after and in the line of that first disciples, right, who were following, as Michelle says, Jesus. We also, therefore. Isn't that an amazing thought? So if Jesus gave authority to the 12 and to the 70 and he sent them out, and when they went out, they had both power and authority to accomplish what they were sent to do. And they did. Remember that part of our, of our uh, study? Exciting. They came back. They were elated, were they not? 
Okay, so what does that say to you and I then? We have way more power than we use. And I think there can be, I think the problem lies in our thinking. What do you think? When Jesus said to his disciples, Yoshiko, go ye therefore into all the nation, teach them, right? And when, he, when he's given that authority to his disciples, he's actually given it to you. That's pretty powerful, right? Do you believe him? Do you believe you have the authority? Do you believe you have that kind of power? I mean, I just, I think though that in our thinking, somehow we relegate, we do, we take scripture and we put it in the pages there. We go, that was then and this is now. And somehow we don't take that and bring that forward. And I think there's a lack of confidence. One of the, I listened to, on TV this week about this very subject of Matthew 28, go ye therefore. A particular teacher was talking about uh, all of the techniques that can be used and how you approach people and when you approach them and how what you might do and how you can, you know, just trying to give them some tools to help it, people be more comfortable in it. But I, one of the things I saw was lacking in the message was this point that you have been given authority and not only authority but you have been commanded but we're not doing it our churches are are waning and if you think about the globally look at the world look at our nation how fewer and fewer christians there are and how fewer and fewer the influence is of christian believers we are losing because we are not truly believing. I think it's about it's about grabbing hold of and and embracing or putting into effect that which God has said. He said it. Do you believe it? And if you believe it, then you need to act on it. Okay, so Jesus gave authority and he sent them out. They had power and they did and they did perform it. Now, uh, in 12, what did it say about authority? Yeah, that you need to fear not the one who can kill the body. So often, I think our fear is, is in this world. We look in our world around us, and even if it's not facing life and death, although it can for some, right, in the world. But if it's even in the United States of America where it's far less likely, it's more likely that you're just going to get shunned or you're going to get ridiculed or you're going to get looked down upon. At least at this point in history, we still have freedom. So be using it while we still got it. There may come a day when we won't have freedom to speak out in the same manner. It will be literally a risking your life to do so. Many nations, it's that way today. Speaking out is taking a risk. But if, if in that particular passage, uh, we fear the, the physical world of this life, but who should we really be fearing? That's right. The one who has the power to do what? Cast into hell. Because those who will not, let's see, I'm trying, I'm, there's a verse that's kind of dancing in my head. Um, 
he who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And therefore, consequently, what's the reverse of that? If you, if you deny me, what? I will deny you also. That's kind of a scary thought. So in this passage, he's saying God is the one who has authority to cast people into hell. Oops, my thing went dry. So basically, don't fear, don't fear men. Um, that's in 12, uh, 4 and 5. Uh, then we did the Matthew 28. All authority was given to Jesus, and he commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations. One of the things he also stated in that Matthew 28 that I just wrote as a separate point what does he promise you and I at the end of that command to go and to make disciples? There you go. He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. There is an ever-abiding, ever-present God who is sovereign, which when we're looking at this word of authority, is that he is, he is authority, he is given authority, but he also has authority over life. Nothing, I mean, we didn't go there, but there are other passages when, I, I'm still trying to remember, um, it's been a long time ago, but we did one on the sovereignty of God, which kind of ties into this concept of the authority as well. It's slightly different, but it's, it's kind of close. We did a whole list and looked up a gazillion verses. I was thinking it might have been Daniel, but I couldn't find my list. Romans? See, because you just did that. <laughs> Romans part one, part two, part three, or part four? Do you know? Must be three. It has to do with the... Okay, all right. I think it was three. Okay. All right. Uh, why I remembered that, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but um, in that particular list making, I remember we looked at everything from he is, he is sovereign over the wind and the rain. He's sovereign over um, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. He's sovereign over your health. He's sovereign over... He knits you together in the mother's womb. He places you exactly in history and time when you will be born so that you might seek him and find him and come to know him, although he's not far from any one of us, right? X says this. So God is sovereign over it all. And in this point, he says God has authority to cast in hell uh, into people into hell. Don't fear man. Therefore, it says God has... And also he says, and God will be with you always. I think that was 28.20. Okay. And so in the authority of God, under the, the subject of the authority of God, knowing that God will be with you always, even though he, he sends you, and sometimes he'll send you into difficult situations, what does that help us in regards to understanding this life and what we're doing here and now? Regardless of our circumstances, we will be with him in heaven. Right. 
regardless of whether you, it kind of, again, back to Daniel. Do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? What did they say bef- about the fire? There you go. He, there you, see, you're ready to teach. When we do Daniel, I'm calling on you, Miss Susan. She remembered it exactly. That's exactly right. That they said, regardless of whether he saves me from the physical death in this life or not, I will not bow my knee to the world, to the false gods, right? But knowing that he is with us always and that he is the one sending us and he is the one empowering us gives you confidence knowing that's the authority. If you want to know the authority of Jesus, well, first of all, he's God, right? But he also was sent with authority through the Father, right? And he bowed his knee to that. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about that as is one example that he came to be a servant and he gave up that position and uh, place befo- beside the father to come to earth to be that son of man to be the seed that was promised and to um, accomplish for us what we could not do for ourselves, which was provide salvation because of our sin okay so we see in one to eight then now let's go back to the text in 20 we see jesus is confronted we about his authority they ask a question this is a hoot right what what goes on in this questioning what's what's the answer what must they do in order to answer correctly <laughs> they have to acknowledge that now the, let's just read it really quick on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him They spoke, saying to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question, and you will tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, this is so clever. This question is so clever. I'm like, Lord, I want to be that smart. I never come up with, you know, I just want to be able to have it on the tip of my tongue like that. They reasoned among themselves. Can you imagine? They turn their backs. They all go over here and they have a little huddle. Okay, now if we say this and this, and if we say that, that, right? And then they come, they come back to him. They reason and they say, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say what? Why didn't you believe John then? What was John's message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a coming of the Son of Man. The Christ is about to arrive on scene, right? He's coming soon. He's the one later who says, Behold the Son of God, or behold the Lamb of God, right? And so they well, then why didn't you believe him if his message was from heaven? Why don't you submit to that authority? Do you not, do you not submit to the authority of heaven? Right? That would be the question. But if we say from men, then what? Okay, now this is very interesting. It kind of goes back to this. You you know, don't fear the people, but fear God. These these men were afraid of the people, but they did not want to do what? What did they not want to confess? That there was an authority from heaven given to John about this message concerning repentance. They did not want to hear this. 
And, you know, every time the scribes and the, or the Pharisees, any of them came out to where John was teaching or where Jesus was teaching, what did Jesus often call them? Oh, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, right? You teacups that are clean on the outside but filthy inside. I mean, this is to me the most hysterical little section, I think, anyway, just because they were caught. He really did put them in a dilemma kind of a thing. So what was their answer? No answer. We're just not going to answer. So in a way, what did Jesus just do? They they challenged his authority, and what did he just do? They, he silenced them. Now, I don't know about you, but what I did see in this particular chapter on the whole then was Jesus' authority is challenged, but what is the end result? What is he? What ends up happening with that challenge? His authority is confirmed and the challenges are silenced. How did you title the chapter on the whole? How did you title your, your chapter? Jesus was challenged and the challengers were silenced. <laughs> I don't know if you titled it that way, but I just thought, how many times in this chapter did you see that Jesus silences them? Did you, did you take note of that? We see it in 7, we see it in 19, we see it in 26, we see it in 40. I mean, over and over and over, in one way or another, he silences them by the way that he handles them. Now, tell me this, what is it that he does to silence them? Think on that one as we keep moving through this. What is it ultimately that is his tool, his weapon of choice? Because I, I, I love how this actually ties back to begin to the beginning of this. And this says, so they answered that he, we do not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, huh, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I can't imagine he's just snickering under his breath at them. Because first of all, he knows their thoughts. He's still God. He knows exactly what's going on in their mind. You know, have you ever seen those shows where people can read other people's minds because they got hit by lightning or some stupid thing, but all of a sudden they can hear the thoughts of men or women. And, and so they're going, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I'm going, that was Jesus, you know. He, he went to the woman at the well and he told her what? All things that she had done. Not only what she was thinking in the moment did he know, but he also knew everything that had already happened in her life. This is... The God-man who came, he never relinquished his deity. And I think that's an important uh, point to bring out at this point because I have sat through conversations or Bible studies where they bring up, well, he came as a man, but he wasn't God at that time. He didn't take back on his deity until after the resurrection. I'm going, no. How do you explain the power? Where do you, how do you explain his abilities? Right? How do you explain these stories like the woman at the well or raising someone from the dead? Right? Um, in particular, how do you explain that he knows their thoughts? <laughs> well, here is one. He knew their thoughts. He knew what was going on with them. Okay, so um, concerning authority, let's see if there's anything else we need to cover on that. 
I think that's good. Do you have any other points about that subject of authority at this point before we move on? Okay, so let's go to the next section. Jesus is, uh, is questioned about his authority, and I'm going to put on there, they were silenced. And that was in verse 7. All right, now we're going to go to 9 to 19. And now what's Jesus doing here? Okay, he teaches a parable. Now, this one was kind of hard to, to bring it down to a bite-sized title. It's, it's a lot of words. But tell me, in essence, what is this parable about? Who is the major subject in the parable? A land I'm sorry, say it again. The owner, the, the owner of the land, that landowner, okay. And there are vine growers, people who are supposed to be tending that landowner's land, right? And there's one more. And there's the son. Uh, okay, in, uh, what happens to the son in this parable? Who, who kills him? The vine growers, those who are supposed to be tending the land of the landowner. Now, um, I, I don't know exactly how you'd want to. I, I just put a landowner and the murder of his son by those who were tending his land. I, I don't know how else to shorten it, but I'll just do that. Okay, that's the best I can do for shortening it. There, there's bound to be a better way, but I'm not sure what it is. If anybody can come up with a shorter thing that says all that, that would be really good for me. All right, so tell me what you learned in that particular parable. <laughs> Those landowners are going to get it. <laughs> that's They have a day coming. Okay. Okay. Yes, they did. And, and by what by what measure? How did they get warnings? This ma so okay, so in okay, all these warnings, the the master kept sending more slaves in and more slaves in, and finally he says, "Okay, I'll send my son. That they'll respect my son, right? They send the son and Lo and behold, what happens to the son? He's murdered. They kill him. I know it does that part of, but it's okay. You don't have to understand that part of the parable. Remember about a parable. Parables have one primary point. Sometimes the details don't get locked into them and don't, don't get distracted by them because not every point has a purpose except that it's just part of the storyline. Because a parable is like a little mini story or a little, you know, it's like a bed. Isn't that amazing? 
So we will inherit the land. Now, what was the point in this was, in verse 19, what, it, what did the Pharisees and the scribes, what was their response to all of this? Isn't that amazing? All these parables Jesus was teaching, and they're like clueless. La, 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 la. Right? In, they're in la-la land. And yet this one they get. Now, why do you think that is? <laughs> Could be. Now, Jesus wasn't dead yet, so they hadn't gone to full fruition, but they did still get it. Now, how, do, how is it that they, they understood a landowner and tenders of the land and equated that? What were they equating that to? I think they could see that these people, the slaves, came to warn them like the prophets did. And each time they rejected the prophets and or killed them. And that's is Isn't that amazing? So we don't even have to guess that what they might have thought. What Kathleen said is exactly what they understood because the text tells us they understood. So they got it. The the analogies in it, they got. So let's look at this again. Who is the landowner then? Landowner is God. And who are the tenders of the land? Israel. Or, and the, in particular, these Jewish leaders, right? Um are religious leaders, right? Okay. Um, and who is the son? The son is Jesus. And Jesus was claiming to be who? The son of God or the son of man. Same, same thing, just a different phraseology to it, but he was claiming to be the son of God. So if they understood that the landowner was God, that they were the tenders of the land, and that the son was Jesus who who said, he, his claim was, who said, I am the son of God, right? As a matter of fact, when we go all the way back to chapter 3 of Luke, do you remember the genealogy? How, somebody flip back there to three. The very, it's kind of toward the end of chapter three. It's after the temptation, I think. But it, t it goes the into the genealogy. And right at the beginning, there's an interesting little phrase. Does somebody have that handy that they could read it? I want to read that first verse or so. Ah, so it was thought of Joseph, right? But then it goes on and gives his genealogy. And later, when he presents himself in um, Nazareth, he stands up and in the hearing of the people, he reads a, a quote from Isaiah about who? Who's the quote about? That Christ, the Messiah who was to come, and that Messiah, when he came, what would he do? He would heal, he would... He would write, so he would he would do all the things that this man has done. So here's Jesus, who said, I am the Son of God, 
all the way back in three, and in, also in three, he records supposedly the son of Joseph, but not really. He's actually the son of God. He is making that claim throughout the whole book. Have you been surprised how many times Jesus actually is plain as day about the fact that he's the son of God? And yet these people are not accepting. Now, in his early ministry, he kind of is more um, stealth about it. I think he didn't want to rile up the uh, leadership too soon. But yet those who have ears to hear, right? Those who have eyes to see, they will hear and they will see. So he was able to use parables for those who had hearts that were tender and sensitive to the truths about God. And when he would speak to them in parables, they would get it. Just like these men, this one, they couldn't, even they could get, right? Yes, that's how you know that they understood that he who he really was right from the beginning, and that's why I think when you when we see this record of this particular incident now, I'll bet there were many others similar that are just not recorded. But because he's giving us a a consecutive order of record, he takes us progressively to show what what do you see happening in this progressive out uh, laying out of of information about what happened in all the things that he did and said. Starts out with kind of a, a a little more cloaked, a little more cautiousness. But then as he goes along, what happens? He gets m more and more bold. And now we're at the point where he's almost to the cross. And now here he is just wide open. He, and he is not denying. And actually, some of the times he's, com he's confronted about things and he does not deny it at all. So here we have now these, these uh, spiritual leaders, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're uh, understanding that what Jesus was uh, speaking in this parable was what? According to verse 19. I like that. Did you under, underline the word against? Because they took it as a personal affront. It was an attack really upon them. And they understood that. So let's just put this on here. The, uh, understood. And it says that they uh, saw that he was speaking against him. Okay, so they understood. They, they saw that it was against them. They understood the parable completely. They understood that it was... Jesus is that landowner. They are the tenders of that land. The son of Jesus is, is there and coming. And he makes this, this in this parable that the son of God, the son of the landowner, is going to be killed by them. And they are like, oh, man, never be. We are so sorry. Please forgive us, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so what was their ultimate response then? Their response was? 
Say it again. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. But before that, in verse 19, what did they do? Their immediate response to that parable was what? They tried to lay their hands on him. Now, that, that laying hands on him means what? They really wanted to kill him. They wanted to put him to death. Okay, they tried. I think it's interesting that they tried, but yet they weren't successful. <laughs> they tried to lay hands on him. Okay. Yeah, but they, yeah. Okay. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's a great contrast. They do, they do not fear God, they fear men. And they would not even acknowledge who he really was, even though they knew who he was. I'm sorry, but do we have people that do that today? That they understand that Jesus is God, his son. They they believe that there's a God even. They are not opposed to that. They're like, okay, yeah, and there's Jesus is his son. I believe everything, but they still don't submit to it. Are there people that are still like this? Does that not just blow your mind? To think that people can have full truth right before their eyes, and yet they still resist it. Now, maybe they're not quite so aggressive in this manner, but some are. Some who say, I'm, I, I, the ones I get a hoot at are the ones that call themselves atheists, but what, are, what is their biggest opposition? People who believe in God. And I'm going, okay, you don't believe there's a God, so why are you so mad about it? Right? Their, their biggest argument is, Well, if they're an atheist, they don't believe there's a God. And yet they'll hate you because you have belief in a God. And I'm like, well, if you don't believe there's a God, what? it's kind of like that story I told you about where H.J. was at the coffee house and talked to these people from the middle. They were a couple from the Middle East somewhere. And the man and H.J. had had many conversations about faith and about God and so forth. And always the man says, oh, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. Well, then one day his wife got really sick. And when H.J. had an encounter with him, the first thing the guy, when he spotted H.J. at the coffee shop, he came right up to him and says, would you please pray for my wife? <laughs> You're like, okay, wait a minute. H.J. said it because he's that bold. <laughs> I thought you don't believe in God. <laughs> He didn't, instead of saying, oh, of course I will. Gage has no mercy. That's not his gift. He's real pragmatic. But he, but he did confront him about his unbelief, which I think is something that more people, even people of mercy, really should do. How merciful is it to leave a person in their blindness and in their willful rejection of truth, reality, about who God is, who his son is, and and yet they they feel like what they want to do is love a person into faith. Yeah, but sometimes you have to, you know, hit, hit him upside the head a little bit. And so H.J.'s answer to him is, well, I thought you don't believe in God. And the guy kind of looked at him, he said, and he just smiled. <laughs> Katcha! <laughs> right? Now, where that guy ended up, I don't know. I mean, he and his wife eventually moved back, I think, to their home in the Middle East somewhere. But I just think that's a seed planted, right?
And that's all we are accountable to do. My husband had already spoken to them about the gospel previously and about God and about who God is and about having faith in him. Uh, and the man was resistant, right, until his wife got sick. So here we have these men who are presented with a parable by Jesus himself. They understood the analogies in it, who was being spoken of, that it was God the Jewish leaders, and the son was he, Jesus, who was giving this parable. And yet, even though they understood it, they reject the idea. Doesn't it sound like what just happened at the beginning, where they were put into a position where they had to make a choice on how to answer? If they answered one way, they were going to have to confess that, that John had his authority from heaven and that what he preached was truth. And they didn't want to do that. And the other way was to get the people mad at him. And if they did that, again, they're more afraid of the people than they are of God. Exactly. Oh, okay. All right. So now we see the next part is uh, 20 to 26. This is where Susan took us, where we see the next thing. He says, so they were watching him, right? So it, it seems like they give it a, the inference here that there's a little bit of time that's passed. They've been watching him, and they have sent spies in to the camp to spy him out, right, to see if they could catch him, right, in doing anything that they could possibly nail him on concerning the law of Moses, right? Did, they, did he violate anything in any way? Does he speak against their traditions and their laws in any way? And what was the result of that? They were foiled again. Now, what happened is now they've sent in these spies so that, so that in the end, what were they going to do? They were going to deliver him to who? Governing authorities. So what's happened here is before they were coming against him because of the law of Moses. Now what they're trying to do is trick him in the law of the land, which was the Roman law. They're changing their tactics. Oh, we can't get you this way. Let's go this way. Right. That's exactly right, Martha. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and it just becomes at this point so blatantly obvious that those that are going to actually put him on the cross were cognitively aware. I think this is a point about the cross that so many of us, I think, especially as Christians, we really don't didn't have not comprehended fully. It was not that people uh, uh, without knowledge really put him on the cross. So some of the people in the masses, okay. But those leaders who put him there, who had him arrested, who had him flogged, who had him, you know, crowned with a thorn of crowns and, and nailed to that cross, they knew full well who he claimed to be. And they actually even, I think, believed that he was who he was. Well, when you, when you go back again and, and think that they knew immediately that he was, I think they knew immediately who he was. And they did have eyes to see, and they did have eyes mm -hmm. to hear, and they chose right. to uh, 
Which is exactly, that's exactly why I was bringing up this other conversation, because there are people who actually are not opposed to God, not opposed to Jesus. They'll confess, say, okay, I believe in God, and they, they, they kind of do. Now, the they believe there is a God, but they don't bow the knee to him. That's the distinction. They believe there's a God. They believe there's a Jesus. They just don't want to bow the knee. They don't want to give that kind of authority and power into his hands. They don't want to submit themselves in any way. They see it as a giving up of something, not a gaining of something. Right? And it's all, again, about kind of what Lisa just said about in the beginning with the craftiness of Satan. It's... I will make you. The, remember what happened with Jesus when he was tempted. If you will worship me, what? I will give you what? All these things. He's trying to deceive Jesus into uh, bowing to him rather than bowing to God the Father. And that is the work of Satan. And that is exactly what we see going on here with these men. So one of the things I think going inductively into a book like uh, Luke is that what we're seeing is the clarity more of understanding these people who put him on the cross were not were not uh, mindless or without knowledge they fully understood that they were crucifying god's son it was a premeditated no oh yeah big time premeditated they sought after him they pursued him they tried to set him up they sent spies into the camp what does this sound familiar some people got that little joke. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, and they had an illegal trial. That's coming next. Okay, so let's look. What did Jesus do then? Did he get caught off guard? Nope. What does it say about him? <laughs> he detected their trickery. Yeah, right. Yes, right. And I love the way Jesus re replies back to them. Okay, so they they go they state a a situation that has to do with Roman law. So they've made a switch. Before they were always about the things that had to, to do with the law of Moses, right? Now they're switching over to the law of the land. And so they propose a situation and and they ask him is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what was his answer? He understood they were trying to trick him. Yes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Uh, that was brilliant. I mean, really brilliant. That was a great way of coming back at them. They wanted to deliver Jesus to the governor since they could not trap him by that Jewish law. So he, he taught them basically, uh, or his answer to them then was really clever because he didn't violate the law of the land, but he also did not violate the law of Moses either. So he kept both the law of the land and the law of Moses in the way that he answered. So once he answered, yeah, at his answer, what? And what? And what did it say in verse twenty-six? 
Yeah. And they became silent. And that's the point to this whole thing. Believe it or not, all this storyline is simply to show you two points. Jesus is set up to fail. Jesus succeeds and he shuts them up. So on the one hand, his authority is is put to question and he and basically he silences the um, challengers. So he's challenged, but now he silences them. At his answer, they become silent. And that's in verse 26. All right, so that's 20 to 26. Any thought, any other thoughts in that particular area that you want to discuss or have questions about? Whenever they say the word teacher, and um, it, there's a form of it um, that actually refers to like a used car salesman or a snake oil salesman. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I'll try to remember where, because what the guy was pointing out in the commentary is if they use the word rabbi, so you're a godly teacher, and they had a, a trick in mind that it was to show the people that he was teaching around there, hey, this guy's a slim flame. He claimed to be a rabbi. But I can show you where, you know, he messed up. And so, uh, and this was more important than um, Matthew because through Matthew, the people who accepted him called him son of God, David. And the people who didn't, at very best, would call him snake oil salesman. <laughs> Yeah. You know what's really interesting to me always when I'm studying the Word of God is if you and I all had great degrees in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, we could read this and understand things so much better. It's why I keep throwing out to you, even though Kay does not ask you to do word studies, I will say, did you do a word study on this or on that? Our subject this week is authority and where does your authority come from? So to me, the most basic of thoughts is you should do at least do a word study on the word authority. There may be other things in there that you could do word studies on as well. As, as what Glenn is bringing up, that sometimes the word teacher can mean other things. It can, you know, depends on the context it's using. The subject of ki the kingdom, it, can, it depends on what context is being used in, what is being intended. You have to pay attention to all kinds of things, and that's where the inductive Bible study process and the tools of it become so valuable to you and I. The more you use them, the more you, you exercise them, the the deeper you get to go in the Word of God, and the more you'll unearth. You'll, you'll, these treasures are there if you just keep digging for them. Um, but start where you are. Don't be overwhelmed by it, but if you have time and you can move yourself to that next level, I challenge you to do so. Um, outlining what we're doing, uh, you know, I think consistently throughout the book of Luke is to, is learning to, to title paragraphs. That's one of those tools that just helps anytime you're looking at a narrative or a historical record, that kind of outlining of paragraphs helps you to see flow of thought. And it often will connect you. It'll help you understand where did you come from and where are you now and how do they relate? Have you noticed how often Kay says, what does this have to do with what was there? When you, when you looked at this, how does this flow into this? So 
chapter 19, for instance, flows into 20, you really have to go back to the end of 19 to see where they've already been riled up. They, they hated Jesus. They, their intention, it says, was to destroy him. And so then the first thing we get in the narrative in the flow is, is the next time where they confront Jesus and, they're try, and they begin really intensely trying to set him up to have him take a fall. Um, it's, early in his ministry, they were after him, but it was more sporadic. It was a little less intense. Now we're seeing them getting almost into a, a feeding frenzy. They are they are blinded with anger and hatred. They are they understand the truth of it, but they don't care. They have rejected the cornerstone, which we're going to get into now. And and they they want to have nothing to do with this man. They want to wipe him out. And interesting as I think it was it might have been Lisa or Susan that brought up Funny that they think that if they destroy the son of the landowner, that they would somehow inherit the land. That's their. That's how perverted and twisted their thinking is at this point. So they think somehow by destroying the son of God, the Christ who was sent to be their redeemer, that somehow that would give them more power and more possession. Who have they been believing? Satan, that is a deception straight from the pits of hell, which is why he calls them a brood of vipers. You know, sounds horrible. The anger of God, that righteous anger of God again. Okay, uh, 27 to 40. I love this one. This one was fun. Uh, what's going on here? Again, they're starting to... Now, who is the key central people in this particular segment? The Sadducees. Now, Kay asked us to go back and look at Sadducees and tell us what, what did you learn about the Sadducees. The first thing we know is they do not believe in resurrection. I know! <laughs> then why are you talking about... It's like, you don't believe in God, why do you want me to pray for you? <laughs> Right? <laughs> yes. And that is exactly, you are exactly right. When they present a scenario for him concerning resurrection, how ridiculous is it? It's like, it, you know, is there a rock too heavy that God can't pick up? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I already know the answer to that one. was the chicken. Because <laughs> God created them first, and then they had babies. They procreated. Um, so there's an answer to that question, <laughs> just in case you wanted to know. But is there a rock too heavy that God can't pick up? That's the stupidest question ever. What is it? It's the kind of a question designed to just ridicule you, to act, to act, to put you down in a way that I think what they were hoping to do is to box him into a question that was so crazy that he would look at them in bewilderment and not be able to answer, right? <sighs> my answer would have been, you, really? I'd, I, to, well, you know, my answer would have been, I, don't, I didn't think you believed in resurrection. Why, why do you care? That would have been my question. <laughs> that would have been my answer. <laughs> but, okay, so they, uh, they say there is no resurrection. That's in verse 27. 
um, they pose this question, right? Tell, what else did you learn, though, just have, for fun, for giggles? What else did you learn about the Sadducees? You were told to go and look. Okay, they were the wealthy. How do you spell elites? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I'm not an elite because <laughs> I can't even spell it. <laughs> just. Yes. Isn't that interesting? I loved that. Let's see. Mine. I don't know what I did with my. Oh, here it is over here. Yeah. They give. They that. This is interesting. They give no credence to the Torah. Yes. I'm just going to find here to oral traditions. Yeah. Tanakh is the word I should have put on here. I put Torah. Uh, held to, they held to the, uh, basically the Pentateuch, right? To the first five books. Does that make a lot of sense, though, as to why they kept quoting Moses, right? It's the only thing to them that had any authority. And I do think that's an interesting insight when you're studying something about the Sadducees. When they would quote, they would always quote from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. I think it should have gone right to 1 Corinthians myself, but it hadn't been written. <laughs> if I were going to answer, I would have gone to Corinthians. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is they weren't at the beginning, but they worked to deal with the sad, the Pharisees over time, that they would allow them to have pre positions of the priesthood, even though they weren't really. So again, what does that tell you about the priesthood and about the temple that was at that time? Totally corrupt, right? There you go. Yeah. One so one one so yeah they were willing to collaborate with their their most hated e, uh, enemies really the people that they despised most were the Romans if, if not all the Gentiles right and also another thing that's interesting in this passage is how they collaborated so well with the Pharisees where normally it's kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans you know and on opposite sides of the aisle although it's not quite a good comparison but two groups of people right. Pharisees, Sadducees usually are kind of uh, knocking heads, so to speak, as they would progress. But they would collaborate on some things. One thing for sure they collaborated on was this thing about Jesus. Yeah. They were willing to set aside those differences in order to, to unite and conspire to put Jesus to death. But they did, very interesting, they put, they were priestly tribes, um, atta were attained. by agreement with uh, Pharisees. They didn't come to it by um, legal right through the law. That's what's very interesting to me. Is if you go back to the law, 
They're not supposed to be in there. They aren't of the tribe of Aaron, right? Some might have been, but probably, no, that was not their, their main thing. And so the fact that they went into this agreement with the Pharisees, they actually violated the one thing that they hold uh, sacred as those first five books of the law. But in order for the sake of power, they made a deal and they got into, the, into being priests. Um, one of the emphasis areas for them was on priestly obligations, however. As, as they became established uh, in the nitty-gritty of being priests, right, they were so legalistic and they were so uh, possessive and uh, guarded about the temple and about the obligations of the temple. Remember, they were, they were, you know, they were awful lot like the Pharisees, where the Pharisees wrote additional laws and added them in. Now, they didn't acknowledge them, but they would also say, you have to do it this way, you have to do it this way. So they were really careful to try to implement what the law had written concerning how they were to exercise the things that they did. But, you know, the whole thing was messed up. I won't go there. Okay. <laughs> okay, so emphasis on priestly obligation. Okay, so that gives us a background about these Pharisees. For those of you who have never done that before, it's very interesting to kind of go back. I, ha I found a really good little um, site that went through, and it shows. Let me see if I can pull it out here real quick. Because it was really good, I thought. It has a, a chart of Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes. And it goes through and it compares each one and what, they, what the difference is about their beliefs. Social class, authority, practices, their calendar, which is very interesting. Um, what, what they believe about Hellenism. Uh, the Hasmoneans, free will, afterlife, the Bible on the whole, and oral Torah. And so it was kind of a neat little thing. I, I, if you get a chance, you might want to go, maybe I'll ask her to forward it on. It just kind of lines it up and it just lays them side by side and gives you a comparison of what's the difference between these three groups sort of in their beliefs. So it was good. All right, now let's talk then about the subject of this particular area. What is 27 to 40 then all about? Yeah, and what does Jesus do concerning that subject? <laughs> yeah, so he affirms, though, that there is a resurrection, right? That's, I mean, in the end, his answers affirm because... It, the problem is the Sadu Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. And they were posing a question to try to trap him by giving them this most ridiculous thing about she was married, she then she was married to this, then she was married to this. Well, then who, who is she going to be married to in the, in the resurrection? And Jesus gave them, gave them a very interesting thing. So what did we learn about um, resurrection? Um, maybe I'll put it over here. Let's do. Yes, there is going to be one. Couple of points though that he that he teaches us. Uh huh. Yeah. 
Isn't that interesting? So one of the points that we learned, and it may be something that was not recorded in anything previous uh, in Scripture, was that in the resurrection, then what is going to happen to us is we are going to become like the angels. Now, that does not mean we will become an angel, right? Because angels are their own distinctive being. We are never going to be an angel. Just like, by the way, we are never going to be God. Some people think about, you know, going to heaven and then you look down and you watch things. Do you think that's possible? The answer is no. Why? Because we're not God. We are, we are contained into a single entity. God is all present, omnipresent, all knowing, all seeing. When I become a resurrected person, I do not become like God, all-knowing, all-seeing. He is the only all-knowing, all-seeing. I am limited. I am finite. Will always be finite. However, in the resurrection, one thing I will get, according to this, is an immortal body. Like the angels, I will be immortal. And therefore, because I become immortal, what's no longer necessary? Procreation. And therefore, we will not be what? Married nor given in marriage. So that's kind of interesting, right? Good. I thought it was really cool. In resurrection, uh, we will attain an immortal body. We cannot even die. Isn't that cool? That's why they call it everlasting life, right? That's in verse 36. Um, we will not marry in the resurrection or be married. We will not marry or be married. I could actually clarify that. If you want to see more about this immortal body, you might go to 1 Corinthians 15. For those of you who don't know about that lovely, lovely chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, it goes on, it talks about how what the mortal must put on immortality, right? And, and so it actually expounds on your understanding about what this is speaking about right here. Um, all right, now, what is the other thing that we learn about? What else does he say? Interesting. They, they question him saying, teacher, Moses wrote. So what does he say to them in 36 and 37? Moses, if you did not connect that, you might want to. What I did is I circled Moses up in verse 28. Then I circled Moses down in 37. And I drew a line down to it because they threw Moses out as the standard bearer for insight. And then he replies to them using Moses. I know he just nailed them, didn't he? Because <laughs> he, you, why is it, why is it that he would do this? What, what happens here for them? Remember what we learned about them. They don't give any credence to oral traditions or to the, the, not the Torah, the other, the Tanakh. But they do give credence to the law of Moses, or those, the Pentateuch, those first five books. So they're quoting Moses, and when he quotes Moses back then, what? How is that helpful? Yeah, exactly. He actually showed them 
which is brilliant because even though it doesn't talk about resurrection, doesn't use the word resurrection, it's not even the subject matter in that passage per se, but simply by the way that Moses makes a statement concerning three patriarchs who, by the way, are what? Dead, because they're not living during the days of Moses, right? But when he speaks about them, how does he phrase it? That sounds like he uses the verbiage that they are alive. Even though they, they know they're dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, they're in the grave, and yet he speaks to them. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And they're, that's right, he is, exactly. So in doing that, See, if we could understand Hebrew, we probably would see it even more clearly. In the English, it probably does not come out as clear as it probably does. I would be my guess. I don't know that for a fact, but I bet in the Hebrew, you would get a much clearer um, distinction that what he's saying is they're alive, right? The way the, the language is carried through there. Um, okay, so he quotes that. Now... Um, he is not the God of the dead, but he is of the living, for all who for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said to him, what? Well. Teacher, you have spoken well. Now, it's very interesting. It just says some of them did. The rest of them were just what? A little zipper on their lips, right? They were just totally silent. So Jesus affirms there is a resurrection. This And, and in the end, what's the conclusion of that? In verse 40. Yeah. Again. They didn't. I know. He just he just puts them, he shuts them up. That's what it really boils down to. They come at him. They. This is very interesting to me too, is that they think they are so smart. They think they know so much. And yet he turns the tables on them. He quotes back to them from the very passages that they give credence to, and they cannot give an answer because he's right. Right? He can't, they can't answer him. They did not have courage to question him any longer. I know. Okay, we have one more thing to cover, and then we'll, or, or is it two? Okay, the, la the next one is 41 to 44. I'm hoping to get through this. We might have to shortcut here. Uh, what is Jesus doing in these verses? Now he's questioning them. Because he has shut them up, no longer are they going to question him because he's he's basically shamed them to the point that they they now know he, that they can't trap him, they can't trick him, they can't out question him. Right? He always has an answer, and the answer is something they cannot refute or rebut. So now they are finally at their wits' end. Now what they're going to simply do is shut up. Right? And, and by the way, not just shut up and go away, but shut up and now they're going to do all these things which will eventually lead to Jesus going to the cross. But they are they are truly silenced. Now, Jesus, therefore, does what at this point? He starts questioning them. He's really turned the tables. At, yeah. 
Yes. He says, so how is it, this is the question, how is it the Christ is David's son? Now, there's not an answer given in here. So that means not only did they have to sit on this information and reason it through for themselves, no answer was given. He just posed the question and then he went on, right? So what did you come to conclusion on as you looked at this? What, was, what did Jesus actually do in this particular question concerning them constantly challenging his authority? Who are the scribes again? What do they do? They're the writers of the law and the Pharisees. They're the legal counsel. They're the ones who are supposed to know this. They're the ones that teach it, right? So he poses a question to these brilliant men of wisdom who know so much and there's dead silence, crickets in the room, right? So he asks this question, how is it that the Christ is David's son? And then he goes on to quote that verse where he says, um, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. Now, what do you what did you come up with on that? Why does that prove anything? Yes, eventually you get to that point because what is it just just on a real basic human level when you have a child? Pretend I'm David, Susan. You're my child, right? Would I call you Lord? Why not? There you go. So the question was posed on a very practical kind of understanding that these people, they, they were saying, now wait a minute, never does the patriarch submit himself to the underlings that are coming up. Never does he uh, bow his knee. It's kind of like the story of Melchizedek. Remember how that was, well, who is this Melchizedek? It all has to do with understanding that the Melchizedek was God himself. Why would he, Abraham give a, a tithing to him if he was not someone other than who he was? So in this case, it's the same thing. He's saying, why would David call him Lord if he's David's son? A son should say to David, Lord, because if it's his son, the honor... Yoshiko, you come from a culture that's very strong on showing respect to the elder, right? So this you can probably understand even more than most of us because Americans don't respect anybody, right, <laughs> For the, on the whole. <laughs> so we should teach it better, but we don't. Um, but the idea that David would call his son Lord is what he's asking them. So they're left with this dilemma in their head. They're going, oh, yeah, he does. They do say Dave, he's David's son. And I think what they had done is divorced it from the rest of this passage. And they had said, well, the son of David will come. God has promised a son of David to sit upon the throne. They got that part. But what they didn't, under, they didn't ponder, what they hadn't considered, was the question Jesus posed then how is it that David calls his son Lord? And in asking that question, he's asking them to come to the conclusion that 
He's not just what? That's right. But why is he the Lord over David? How does a son who's who is birthed in human flesh eons later have the ability to be the one who is the Lord over David? What's the second part of the picture that they weren't willing to admit or confess? He's the promised seed. He is God come in flesh. He's Emmanuel, the eternal God. He is the eternal God. And so what that's what he wanted them to come to conclusion on was that he is not just the son of David, but he is God, the eternal God. And in doing that, that's why David called him Lord. But see, they, they had not asked that question. They had never pondered, I don't think, that question. The answer is that the Christ will be born a man in the bloodline of David, but he is also the eternal God. This was the essential truth that they were either missing or ignoring. And Jesus brings it up as a question. Now, what's really cool is all the masses are hearing these questions as well. Um, and yet, these smart, brilliant, scholarly scribes and Pharisees couldn't answer it either, right? So then what does Jesus do in 45 to 47? Hold on, let me get the, this title up here. Uh, Jesus revealed their lack of understanding. About who. The son. Of David. Was right. Who he was to be. There was more to that than. The, basically, how is it the Christ is David's son? Is that how he says it? Let me see. He said that the, the Christ is David's son. Who the son of David was, and I can now hear the Christ. See, if the Christ had to be the had to be God come in flesh, and they weren't at that place of acknowledging that. So then in 45, so now what's happened is he's exposed that they don't they aren't really as smart as they think, right? They're not as brilliant as they profess. So then in 45 to 47, not only are they not brilliant and, and not as learned as they think they are, but now what does Jesus say about them? This one was pretty simple. Your title was Jesus. Yeah, beware of the scribes. Jesus Jesus warns them. Now tell me why. What do we know about them? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you go back to chapter 11, and we don't have time to do it because we're over time already. If you go back to Luke 11, 42 to 54, just mark that down. And then and then I want you to follow it on in Matthew 23, 13, because it restates it similar to what Luke does, but slightly different. But what he, what he does in Luke 11, and actually in, in this particular passage, you can make a list on what do you learn about them from verse 45 to 47. What did you learn about them? Did you make a list? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. My translation, they are prideful, they are power-hungry, they are greedy, and they are deceivers, and they are stumbling blocks. Right? So all I did was translate it into... Uh, 
what I would call an analytical observation of what that actually means. Okay, so in Luke 11, basically, in totality, it shows you they themselves simply reject him. And in Matthew 23, and they don't allow those who want to, to go either. So that is why Jesus is warning them, beware of them. And then he tells them in 47 what's going to happen to them. Yeah. They will receive. So he's pretty clear about what's going to happen to them. That's sad. What, you know, it's a study that we don't go into, but the idea of condemnation also, and that there are levels of degrees of it. Just like in rewards, some people get this much, some people get this much. It all depends on how faithful you are, right? Did you know that in condemnation, in judgment, there are also degrees of, of punishment in hell? Yeah, I know, I know. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, but 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 the blood covers us, so we don't. We just get the rewards, the rewards only, because we're in faith. You know, I used to fear that truly, Lisa. That was one of the things I feared about the idea of taking up the teaching position was those who teach have higher degree of accountability, right? Well, that's true, but in faith, because it's all about rewards only, I can lose reward but I won't lose salvation. I don't get judged. I only get rewarded. Now, I can lose reward for not living it out. You know, the judgment on that for reward purposes, I'll have fewer crowns possibly, but I will be in heaven. <laughs> so I'm OK 